Well, let's pray once more before we get into God's Word together. Gracious God, uh, we've been so blessed this morning already through our worship, through our singing, through our prayers, through our giving. And now it's time to dive into your Word, and we're so grateful for it. I'm grateful to to you, God, for revealing it to us, and uh, just even the scripture from John 17, which was read earlier, uh, leading up to this time. So thank you, Father. I pray that uh, our souls would be refreshed today as we get back into Mark chapter 14 and uh, continue on as we walk along with Jesus on his way to the cross. Uh, We lift you up and ask you to... um, Just uh, sanctify us, Lord, by your word of truth at this time. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 14. Let's go there together in our Bibles, our wonderful word of God that we have in our hands. And speaking of the Bible, uh, when you consider the different people and characters in the Bible who... We're going through some sort of troubles or anguish. Um, We should understand that there has never been any agony as Jesus is experiencing as we get into Mark chapter 14 here. When we think about the the psalmists who are just pouring out their souls uh, to God in lament, or you think about someone like Abraham, you know, in Genesis 22 when he has to sacrifice his one son, his only son, his beloved son, Isaac. Can you imagine his heartbreak? Or as uh, in our Bible reading, um, somewhat recently, at the end of the book of Genesis, you read about Joseph sobbing uh, upon meeting his brothers and upon seeing Benjamin. Um, the tears and suffering of Job after losing almost everything, right? His home, his children, his health, right, sitting there by the garbage dump. Or David's grief at the death of his wicked son, Absalom, in Second Samuel 18. Or the weeping of Jeremiah, the prophet, in the book of Lamentations, and you could go on and on, right? Um, Luke chapter 22 describes Jesus being so troubled that his sweat was falling to the ground like drops of blood. So we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane today, this secluded spot outside of the city where Jesus often met with his disciples for teaching, for praying, getting away from the crowds. It was a place just a few miles east of Jerusalem, down from the city, across the valley, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it was a secluded spot, but not a, not a secret spot. If we were there with Jesus in the, this time of intense and anguished prayer, soon we'd also be seeing Judas coming to betray him, along with the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers coming to take him away. Today's sermon title is Jesus' Agony in Gethsemane. And you have uh, in your bulletins there some, some notes. Our theme today is that Jesus prayed in agony for God's will to be done as he prepared to receive God's wrath against sinners on the cross. And as we visit Gethsemane and observe the mounting pressure, we, we see and hear the multiplied prayers. And as we understand the misplaced priorities of the disciples, uh, there's going to be some implications and applications for us along the way. So I already gave you your blanks there. If you didn't catch them, I'll, I'll say them again when we get there. But the first point of our, of our outline that we just kind of want to anchor our thoughts to is the mounting pressure. The mounting pressure, verses 32 to 35. In these verses, which some have described as sacred, holy ground, Mark describes the mounting sense of pressure that our Lord is feeling at this time. It was likely around midnight, a mere nine hours or so before he's going to be crucified. 
And although we'll never know the depths of agony and sorrow that our Lord endured that night in this garden, knowing that it was out of love for sinners like us, for the glory of God, makes it that much more amazing. It makes His grace that much more amazing. It's interesting to note that that name Gethsemane actually means olive press or oil press. It was a place where olives from the neighborhood were crushed for their oil. And here's where God the Son would be crushed, so to speak, under the mounting pressure of the suffering that's going to come the very next morning, just hours away. So in verse 32 to 33, the Lord has... Oh, I didn't even read the text yet. Please stand. What, on, what am I doing? <laughs> Please stand. I'm just trying to jump right in and get into it. All right. So uh, if you can, please stand. I'm going to read our text, which is 32 to 42 of Mark chapter 14. So they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same word, words, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Please be seated. So, in verses 32 and 33 now, uh, we see that the Lord has the eight disciples sit down while he brings his three inner circle men, right? Peter, James, and John, into the garden with him. And these were the three who were called by Jesus to be with him at special moments, right? At the Mount of Transfiguration, where he displays his glory. At the raising of Jairus' daughter, he brings them in, particularly for them to witness that, and also here at Gethsemane. And they had the privilege of witnessing the Lord's greatest moments of glory and his darkest hour of trial. Jesus was training these men for leadership all the way to his final hours on earth, preparing them for future service of gospel ministry. And we're getting a, the inside look along with them of this great anguish that comes upon the Lord here. Okay, Mark writes, in the presence of Peter, James, and John, Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. We've got to pause there for a moment. because that Greek word for very distressed. Um, it means to throw into amazement or alarm. Okay, amazement or alarm. To be thoroughly astounded, even to be struck with terror. It's the same word used in the end of Mark, um, the Gospel of Mark in Mark 16, verses 5 and 6, when the women come to Jesus' tomb and they're wanting to anoint his body. And instead, they find what Mark says is a young man, but it's an angel, right? And so they are, um, that same word used for their utter astonishment and even their fright at seeing this figure there instead of Jesus' dead body. This was a moment of particularly deep 
agony for Jesus as he's already troubled before, right? John 13, 21, um, this was just shortly before, he told the 12 disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Okay? He was already troubled, but here he is excessively concerned. He's sorely troubled, dismayed, upset. Okay? Truly, our Lord is in extreme turmoil here. We can't miss this. Um, the shadow of the cross is looming over his head, and it's coming upon him now. And Peter was eyewitness, right, to this distress in the Lord. And he relayed that for Mark to write it down. Okay? Peter was kind of the one who's relaying this information to, to Mark. So both, both, both words and verbs that Mark uses here are in the present tense, okay, which means that Jesus continually was experiencing this trouble and this distress. So as I mentioned, it's a depth of emotion that we can never fully know. Uh, it's hard to even begin to comprehend. But it was such strong agitation that swept over him, okay, such acute emotion, even compounded by bewilderment. Okay, if you study those words, anxiety, nowhere else in Scripture is the Lord's troubled grief portrayed in such vividness. I mean, look at what he says in verse 34. He says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The Lord himself says the innermost part of his being is deeply grieved, exceedingly sorrowful, deeply distressed, very much saddened, his very soul. Okay, the same word is used to describe the rich young ruler's despair after Jesus told him to sell his possessions and follow him. Right? And he couldn't do it. So his, his soul became deeply grieved. In other words, this is not run-of-the-mill despondency, obviously, right? It's not even low-level depression. Um, this is affliction beyond measure. Okay? Unless you think I'm overstating the case, we need to pay attention to Jesus' words. He says his grief is to the point of death. Okay? Talk about mounting pressure. The enormity of pressure and the depth of grief was so overwhelming for the Lord that it threatened to crush out his life right there. Okay, one translator renders Jesus saying here, my heart is breaking, it almost kills me. Okay, the Savior's sorrow is so profound that it ultimately defies human comprehension or description. Okay, it was such incredible turmoil in his soul that Luke 22:44, the parallel passage is Luke 22. It says that an angel from heaven came to strengthen him. And it's like uh, after the 40 days of temptations from Satan in the wilderness and fasting and everything. And uh, at the end of that, right, angels came to minister to Jesus. Well, that was at the beginning of his ministry. This is at the end, right? The very next verse in Luke 22, Dr. Luke says, And being in agony... He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And this famous verse highlights the prominence of the Lord's struggle. The spiritual struggle and pain and labor of conflict. Okay, as surely as the temptation to go around the cross and Satan's attacks, okay, this was at its strongest and its meanest. Hey, the, the, the attacks of Satan were very, very strong in those 40 days of Jesus' um, temptations, right, in the wilderness in the beginning. And I might argue that this was the strongest and meanest of those attacks. That word, Greek word is agonia. It's where we get the English word agony. And it was used to refer to the trembling anxiety that someone had before entering into a, a, a fight or a wrestling match or a death struggle. Okay, Jesus' agony was such that, first of all, he was sweating. He was, when was the last time you were praying so hard and agonizing so hard in prayer, talking to God, that you're, you start sweating? Okay, let's not miss that. And remember, too, this was around midnight. Okay? Um, so temperature-wise, it would have been cool, if not cold, uh, out there in Gethsemane. But further, the Lord's anguish was such that it caused his sweat to become 
like drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay, notice, like blood, which means his sweat didn't become blood, but most likely his sweat was, was tinged with blood. It's a, actually a very rare medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. I had to practice that a number of times to get it right. But it's where one's sweat will contain blood. Apparently under extreme physical or mental or emotional duress or stress, the tiny blood vessels that surround the sweat glands can dilate and rupture. It's like uh, some kind of internal hemorrhaging. So blood can enter and mix in with the sweat. Charles Spurgeon, uh, referring to Galen, who was a first century Greek physician and surgeon, he says, quote, the old physician Galen gives an instance in which through extremity of horror, an individual, a patient of his, poured forth a discolored sweat so nearly crimson as at any rate to appear to have been blood. Other cases are given by medical authorities as well, end quote. So um, just this incredible physical medical phenomena that, that, that's happened here. Um, it's quite interesting to note, too, that in the Garden of Eden, okay, a, a different garden, right? The first Adam was told to cultivate and work in that garden, right? But it wasn't until he fell and sin entered into the world that God gave the curse. And he says, by the sweat of your, of your face, of your brow, you will eat bread. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, the last Adam, he's sweating blood-tinged sweat. And it's in submission to the will of God, obeying the Father and working to conquer Adam's sin. So we see the pressure mounting, coming to bear on the Lord's very heart and soul, on the verge of breaking. What an incredible display of Jesus' humanness, his true and full Humanity, right? Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not robotic. He was not stoic and unfeeling. Rather, he felt true sorrow. His suffering was deep. He cried. He wept. He felt lonely. He felt despair more than we could ever comprehend. So the million-dollar question is, just what is the Lord's unimaginable agony about here in Gethsemane at this midnight hour? What caused such incredible anguish? What was so fearful? What was so troubling for Jesus? And a number of things come to mind, right? Judas about to come and treacherously betray him after all the love, all the years, all the service, all the ministry. The disciples, the rest of them, They're about to abandon him. Was it that? Was it one of his closest leaders, one of his main guys, Peter's denials that is so troubling to Jesus? Is it the false accusations made by his own people, the scribes and Pharisees who are supposed to be spiritual leaders of the Jews? Was it the beatings and whippings, scourgings and mockery of the pagan Roman government? Was it the excruciating evil torture and humiliating physical and mental pains of being crucified and executed and tortured on the cross? Well, that million-dollar question is going to be answered in the next few verses and leads to our next point. The multiplied, multiplied prayers. The multiplied prayers. Verse 35 says, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Jesus goes about a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John, still within earshot, still within view of them. And again, the agony and the pressure he's feeling is seen in that if if you look at the text there, he doesn't remain standing as he prays. 
which was oftentimes the custom back then to stand up and pray. Rather, he fell to the ground. In the parallel passage in Matthew, which is Matthew 26, it says he fell on his face. So the Lord is prostrate on his knees, face down to the ground, bowed down in desperate prayer. And what's he praying? Mark writes that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. But Jesus' own words in verse 36, he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. As horrific and wicked and abominable, all the things that I mentioned before as possibilities of what is causing Jesus' anguish, all those things leading up to and including his crucifixion and death at the hands of sinful men, those things were not the cup that Jesus was in agony over. You know, he's crying out to his Abba, right? This Aramaic term meaning Father, which conveys a sense of intimacy and warmth and, and, and closeness and trust. He acknowledges his Father's ability to do anything. All things are possible for you. But he says the hour, this cup that he's agonizing about is the hour of ultimate suffering on the cross where he's going to receive the full cup of God's holy anger and wrath against the sins of man. The cup that's a metaphor that's used oftentimes in the Old Testament to describe different things, but many times, oftentimes, even most times, as judgment, judgment and wrath. The abandonment of everyone else in the world truly was awful. And his friends, his disciples, followers, people who were hailing him not too many days ago. Yet what Jesus was really dreading here was the forsaking of his own father, Abba. Being separated from perfect fellowship and unity from God for the first time in, in all of eternity. Facing the reality of being the sin bearer was nearly unbearable in this dark hour in Gethsemane. And that's what was happening on the cross, right? The Son of God bearing the blame and punishment for our guilt, for our crimes, for all our sins. Someone has to take the penalty of sin against God. Otherwise, God is not holy. Sin must be punished. Sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, God is mocked. His holiness is mocked. Sin against God deserves nothing short of eternal death. Eternal death, not annihilation, not ceasing to exist, not purgatory. No, eternal death is what sin deserves. And who can pay for it? Well, this is the cup that Jesus, the only one who could pay for our sins, is going to be drinking from not too many hours from now. I just love the way James Edwards puts this. And he writes, quote, It is one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. Who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? In acquiescing to the Father's will of bearing the sins of many, interceding for transgressors, Isaiah 53:12, Jesus necessarily experiences an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions. And a little more, he, he writes, the worst prospect of becoming the sin-bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God, an alienation that will shortly echo above the desolate landscape of Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. End quote. We must understand that Jesus' holy soul shrank from the awfulness of being made sin upon the cross, blamed for our sins. It was not merely death, 
was not just torture, as, as absolutely horrible as that was. It wasn't even execution. But it was his father's divine anger against sin. The Lord causing the iniquities of us all to fall upon him. That's what filled our Lord's soul with horror. So, in his perfect humanity, without any sin, Jesus prays to his Father. Is it possible that there is another way than this? Other than drinking the cup of your wrath, of experiencing separation from you, Abba, even for a moment, might there be a way for this to be removed from me? Verse 36, the second part, is the key, right? He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew 26, 39, yet not as I will, but as you will. Luke 22, verse 42, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows that his time and hour had come. He's been telling the twelve. He's been praying. He had already been for a while now, had his set face towards Jerusalem. Like a stone, he set his face towards the cross. As we've seen, Jesus no doubt is extremely distressed, right? That mounting pressure about what's going to happen. But he willingly accepts it. He's always in perfect conformity and unity with his Father's will. Right? Luke 2, verse 49. From his childhood, he was always about his father's business. John 4, verse 34. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in John 17, he says, I've accomplished your work. In John 5, verse 30, he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we see that over and over. This is characteristic of Jesus' life. He's going to tell Peter pretty soon after Peter cuts off the high priest's slave's ear, right? Put the sword back. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It's found in John 18, 11. So here is Jesus in his full humanity, praying, voluntarily surrendering his will to the Father's, just like he always did. There, there is... There is not, there was not conflict between the divine will and Jesus' desires. No conflict between the Father and the Son. I mean, this was part of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A.T. Robertson said, quote, We see the humanity of Jesus in its fullness both in the temptations in the wilderness and in Gethsemane, but without sin each time. And this was the severest of all the temptations to draw back from the cross, end quote. So the anguish that he felt made its way to victory and brought final determination to accomplish the work. He came into the world to do God's will only and completely. That was his greatest desire, and he stayed on that till the very end. So this is the crux of the Lord's prayer, Jesus' prayer here. Not my will, but yours be done. He's all about the Father's will. This is what Jesus wanted above all. And this should be our greatest desire as his disciples, as believers, as Christians, as we seek to imitate him and walk with him. Okay, and um, once again, we understand what's going on here as far as Jesus, there's nothing like what Jesus is about to do and what Jesus is going through. But by way of application, I want to ask, 
do we pray from our heart and soul as Christ did in that garden for, for God's will to be done? Do we truly? You might have heard the story of a woman who invited several guests to dinner. And at the table, she asked her daughter to pray. But I don't know what to say. The child was complaining. So the mother encouraged her, just say what you hear mommy say. So the girl bowed her head and prayed, Dear Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? I think most of us here in our church um, at Faith Bible, we do pray that God's will be done. But I'll say even for myself, sometimes I pray that God's will be done, but at the same time, somewhere in the back of my mind, I really am saying, Lord, please let my will be your will. Right? Lord, let me, let me get what I want. In actuality, this might be the hardest prayer request that we can make. Not my will, but your will be done. Because we really want what we want, don't we? I do. Or we think we know what's best for us, right? Or what's wisest for different situations or decisions that come up in life. After all, we spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. But truth be told, sometimes we say we prayed a lot over something, but the reality is we just did a whole lot of thinking and thinking and talking to ourselves. And we spend quite a lot of time thinking about how we feel about something. And then we become swayed and ruled by our emotions rather than truth. And the reality is we didn't actually spend that much time praying to our Father for His will to be done in comparison to how much time we spend thinking and feeling about the situation or decision. Learning to seek God's will and submitting to it, it ain't easy, is it? It's not. It's a lifelong process of, of growing into that. Again, when things are going our way and there's no conflict, or no tough decisions or differences of opinion, it's pretty easy to think that we're being godly and submitted and humble. But where the rubber meets the road is when there is conflict or we're not getting what we want or where the decision's really, really tough to make. It gets hard when we need to set aside our own desires or our own wants, our own dreams or whatever and trust God and follow his will. That's when it gets difficult. So here's where we need to consider our Lord Jesus, right? His desire as he prayed in Gethsemane, yet not my will, but your will be done. Okay, the price that he paid, which caused him so much agony, bearing the weight of our sins upon himself on the cross, May this be our constant encouragement and reminder of his will that was fully submitted to God in the the most unimaginably sorrowful thing that that one could undergo, Jesus being separated from his Father. Spurgeon says, In any case, Our cup can never be as deep or as bitter as was his. And there were in his cup some ingredients that never will be found in ours. The bitterness of sin was there, but he has taken that away for all who believe in him. His father's wrath was there, but he drank that all up and left not a single dreg for any one of his people." So I ask, can we, Psalm 37, 4 and 5, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will even give you the right desires and attitudes and just the desire for his will to be done rather than your own. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he will do it. What a precious promise for God to continually change us and transform us and align our wills and our desires, what we want to be what God wants, to love what God loves, 
with passion to seek out what God wants out of us and not so much what we want out of Him. So that leads us to our last point here, which is something we see in, the, in this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Obviously, Jesus' priority was to seek his Father's will, right? to go to him in this dark hour of trial, of struggle. And Jesus also had his disciples in mind and heart as well. Here it's particularly the three, Peter, James, and John, continuing to train them, like I said, for service and leadership. In verse 34 of our text, even as he was troubled in spirit, he had clear instructions for them. It says, remain here. Right? Don't go away. Don't go off. Sit tight and keep watch. Okay, Matthew 26, he says, keep watch with me. Luke 22, he tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, stay alert. Okay, that keep watch, it's repeated a, a few times here in Mark chapter 14. Keep on the spiritual lookout. Okay, be watchful. Stay and pray. Right? Matthew says, he says, um, keep watch with me. And he says, pray that you may not be led into temptation, right? So notice that Jesus didn't say, pray for me. He said, stay, keep watch with me. The Lord wants them to be vigilant and guarded. And I don't believe he means to be on the lookout for the Roman soldiers who are about to come or the betrayer Judas. Rather, he wants them to be praying to God and spiritually on guard against temptations that are coming. And temptations will be coming, right? When Judas does arrive, when the Roman soldiers do come, when Jesus is taken away, when people start accusing them, when their faith in him is going to be tested. Is he the Messiah? Really? Do they really believe that? When they've got decisions to make internally and externally, follow him, forsake him, believe or fall away. Jesus is telling them to be prepared. Pray, keep watch, ready, ready for external attacks and internal temptations and influences. He is prioritizing prayer to them, that they be focused, fighting temptations and alert against attacks of evil and of the devil and of sin, which is so deceitful. Interestingly, the word that Jesus uses, gregoreo, is derived from another Greek word, agero, which means literally, the agero word means literally stay awake. Stay awake. Wake up. And what does he find Peter, James, and John doing after that first session of prayer? Sleeping. That's their priority right now. Verse 37, after his anguished prayer, that first session, they've, they've done the opposite of what he said. Not only spiritually asleep, but physically snoozing. And can I grant them that it was late? <laughs> it's probably midnight or maybe even after. But this was Jesus' time of greatest agony that they were witnessing. And in fact, as I mentioned before, it's likely that the Lord was within view and within earshot, okay, meaning they could see him falling down on his knees. They could see him face down on the ground. They could see him and hear him crying out in his distressed spirit to the Father. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Listen to this. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says, He offered up, talking about Jesus, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. It seems that Peter, James, and John would have been able to both see and hear the Lord crying out in agony to his Father. Yet, these men fell asleep. And um, just at the beginning of my seminary years, one of the first uh, pastoral ministry jobs I had was a part-time youth youth pastor at, at a church. And it was a charismatic church, 
and I, I got some counsel from the, the guys at the seminary and um, just uh, people there, and, and they said that it was, it was uh, worth, worth a try. And so it was a charismatic church, which theology we don't uh, agree with, but um, they, they weren't forceful upon it, but the pastor, the head pastor there, wanted me to be part of the 5 o'clock a.m. Saturday morning prayer time. And so every Saturday morning, I, I had to go there at 5 o'clock. And um, that's when the, the, the prayer started. And it was first it was kind of just quiet, uh, everybody praying. But um, after a while, uh, just maybe 30 minutes or an hour later, it would turn into uh, people starting to pray out loud. And it got very, um, you know, boisterous. And it started, you know, praying in tongues. And uh, everybody just in, in, the, in the room was praying, like, really loudly and crying out and, and everything. And uh, as, as weary and sleepy as I was, you know, at that early hour on Saturday morning in seminary uh, years, um, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I couldn't sleep with all that going on. Um, and so just to give a picture of, you know, Jesus was crying out. He was probably in, in tears of anguish. Um, just in an emotional just expression of, of prayer to God. And yet the disciples are fast asleep each time, right? Uh, it doesn't just happen once. And in verse 37, you look there and, you know, Jesus calls Peter Simon here, maybe alluding to the fact that Peter was not living up to the strength that his new name that Jesus gave him implies, meaning rock, right, stone. Um, but he asks him, could you not keep watch for, for one hour? So he tells him again, keep watching, keep praying that you may not come into temptation. Again, this is Jesus' priority for them. He knows what's coming. He wants them to be readied by strength which can only come from going to God in prayer. And again, the Lord is tender here, I believe. I don't think he's like sharply rebuking them, okay? And I think he, he gently explains that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think he's saying in general that the disciples do want to listen to him. They, they want to stay awake, um, but their flesh is weak. And whether he means flesh as in just physical body uh, in this case or flesh as in unredeemed sinful nature, okay, it's, it's used uh, depending on the context in different ways in the Bible. Theologians and commentators have differing opinions on what one that Jesus is talking about here. But either way, the principle holds true. Okay, as disciples, Peter, James, and John, us as believers, our spirit does want to obey Christ our Lord. I believe that about you, brothers and sisters. In general, we, we, Romans 7, right? We, we do want to do what we're supposed to do. Um, but our flesh is weak. Okay, sometimes, physically, our bodies are tired or sick, just not feeling well, fatigued which makes it hard sometimes to obey, to do what we're supposed to do. Other times our spiritual selves are weak and succumbing to sin and temptations and, and the rest. So the truth here is that the disciples and us okay, are not to rely on our flesh, our own power, our own strength, our own resources. Our priority needs to be God, okay, depending on him, always leaning on him, the power of the Holy Spirit, praying for that, leaning on his strength, especially in times of temptation, of struggle, of weakness, okay, times where we're vulnerable to attacks coming from the world, coming from the devil, or from our own sinful fleshly lusts. So verse 39, it says, Again he went away and prayed. He's saying, the same words. Hey, this multiplied prayer as we went over. Um, struggling yet seeking God's will. Hey, the same word. It doesn't mean he was saying, said the same exact words in his prayer, but the same word, the same subject matter. 
Verse 40, Peter, James, and John, they, they just couldn't stay awake, right? Again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Uh, one of the other parallel passages says, for, for they were in sorrow. I think it was in Luke. Okay, so despite all that, they were ashamed. Um, they were speechless. They didn't even know what to say to the Lord, right? And um, have you ever been just kind of in that situation? Maybe just uh, back in the day, being in school, being in a class, sitting in the front row and falling asleep, right? Um, or just, I don't know, work meeting, sermon. <laughs> Feels bad, right? They didn't even know what to say to him. They were speechless. But in verse 41, because that was the second time, right? Verse 41 is the third time. Even though they felt that, it didn't stop them from crashing out yet another time. Verse 41 says, he came the third time. Are you still sleeping and resting? And it is enough. It is enough. Um, yeah, so it's interesting to note once again that Peter and the rest of them, they had literally just said they, they would never abandon him or deny him, right? But somehow they've prioritized their need, their desire for physical sleep over what Jesus said is their need. He said, you need to keep watch. You need to keep praying. And he told them that three times. Prayer in order to overcome this temptation to abandon him or deny him or forsake him. And it's three times that they're found sleeping. And it's going to be how many times that Peter denies Jesus that very night okay, before the rooster crows twice. Right? Three times. So the... I guess the obvious application for us, without vigilant, purposeful, and I might add even extended or elongated times of prayer with the Lord, our tendency will be to try to live and serve and minister and love and resist sin and put off lust, put off temptations, um, our tendency would be to do all that in our own strength. Okay, Peter, James, and John, they, they couldn't even last an hour. They thought they were okay. They'll never, never go away from Jesus, never deny him. And we'll see how, how long that lasts, right? Judas and the, the Romans are going to be there very soon. And the disciples are going to take off not long after that. So for us, as we think about our own prayer lives, our own need, our own dependence. Let me remind you, dear, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, okay, our, our prayers are an expression to God and to ourselves of our dependence on the Lord. It's an expression of our weakness, that we, we're not boasting and confident in ourselves, but, but in God and His power and His strength. And so, as we get to the end here um, Jesus prayed in agony okay, just utter anguish for God's will to be done in his perfect humanity perfectly sinlessly he did this and yet uh, incredible to think that there was, there was a struggle there of course he was victorious his will was the father's will and this was all in preparation to receive God's fury against our sins. And he's going to be facing that. And full on, front on, um, just on the cross the very next day. So with that understanding in place, I pray that we too as Christ followers, that we would run to God in the face of pressure, and truly seek his will to be done in our hearts and in our lives, and we would place spiritual priorities over other priorities. And certainly it takes many doses of humility to submit to God's will rather than our own. Sometimes it seems our greatest weakness is our failure to seek God's will and God's strength. And yet, what example and hope that we have in the life of our Savior, as we've seen from our text today. Okay, 
Hebrews 5, I, I quoted a different verse a bit ago, but Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Although he was a son, Jesus was a son, capital S, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Wow, what a profound truth that is. That in Christ, in his suffering, in his obedience, his example, his going before us, we have the way. We have the way to overcome. We have the strength, not in ourselves, but in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word once again and for Jesus' expressions of anguish as he prayed in that garden, as we got to visit with him and with Peter, James, and John for a time today. And once again, God, I I pray that um, we would be able to apply uh, this, these truths that we've, we've heard and just even in the way that Jesus went about and fell down on his knees to you in prayer as the disciples should have. But I pray, Lord, that in our weakness, in our times of temptation, our times of trial, God, more and more we would not seek our will to be done, but we would strive and seek after your will. That would be our greatest desire as it was our Savior's. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bearing our sins in your body upon the cross so that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. We thank you for your love and your sacrifice and your perfect will that Christ and God would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.